Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Andrew Brown is the director of East 72, a Sydney-based investment company that resembles a true-to-label Australian hedge fund. Andrew has a long and rich history in the Australian investment management industry. I could have talked to Andrew for hours, so this episode is much longer than our previous episodes. It goes much deeper into Andrew's career as a fund manager, the GFC, starting private investment companies, shorting shares of Tesla, researching Uber's impact on the cab industry, valuation, banking, insurance, cryptocurrencies, and using debt and derivatives to gear a portfolio 400%. Andrew's investment philosophy and some current positions are discussed towards the back half of the episode. 
To kick things off, we start with a hard question Andrew had to answer at 15 years of age. I had one of those, I suppose many uh, people have a seminal come to Jesus conversation with their father or mother at some stage and I had mine when I was about 15 and uh, I grew up in a big steel town, in the, or the biggest steel town in the UK, a place called Scunthorpe mm-hmm. um, and I was actually pretty good at chemistry. And so it, around about age 15, my dad said, what are, you, you know, what are you thinking of doing? And I said, oh, I think I'll become a metallurgist because pretty much everybody in Scunthorpe, you, you, know, you go through school and you may go on to university and you end up working on the steelworks. Uh, at that time, Scunthorpe had a population of 70,000 and 18,000 people worked on the steelworks. And my father basically, who worked on the steelworks for 42 years, basically said to me, don't do that, son, get out of this place. And so I thought, oh, okay, what else do I do? And the other thing I was pretty good at was crudely numbers. And I fathomed out, and we're talking about the mid-70s here in the UK, which, of course, was a time of massive economic upheaval in the UK, massive second-line banking crisis, asset prices collapsing. The UK's largest uh, motor vehicle insurance company collapsed at that time as well. And so things were actually pretty interesting. And I started just reading the papers and sort of thinking, oh, this is kind of interesting, and ended up going to university to do um, economics. Oh, right, OK. Um, How did you find I- it? I found it really interesting because um, at that time I went to the University of Manchester and the economics degree is an extraordinarily wide-ranging degree. So people who wanted to grow up and be accountants did it and likewise people who wanted to be sociologists and social anthropologists did it as well. Uh, and so there was everything in between government, politics, ec- you know, pure economics. I ended up going down the road of economics and econometrics because I found economics really interesting. Um, and econometrics I actually really enjoyed. Um, I sort of had the benefit of winning the school prize for economics and for mm. statistics. So, yeah, that's a merger of the two. Mm. And part of the economics thing which really pushed me towards the stock market rather than other things was the fact, um, obviously, when you learn economics, you learn about finance, you learn about the creation of capital, which is stock markets. And we had a stock picking competition um, in uh, years 11 and 12. And, of course, I won it with uh, the the wonderful Thomson organisation, which at that time owned a whole bunch of UK newspapers, which, of course, now reside Mm. in News Corp. Let's describe your first role in industry. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, you went to Prudential? That's correct. So I I got a job straight out of university at the Prudential. Uh, The Pru at the time were the biggest institutional investor in the UK. I joined in 1980, and in, in, when Margaret Thatcher had been elected, one of the first things she did was to remove exchange controls in the UK. And so institutional investors in the UK were putting a lot of money outside of the UK, you know, literally into the US stock market, the European stock markets, mm-hmm. etc. And so the PRU, obviously, is the biggest investor. They, uh, they were doing that as well. They were um, slightly under-resourced in, in overseas investment. And so uh, each year they put one new graduate onto, um, onto overseas investment. Um, the guy the year before me eventually became the global CIO of AXA, oh, okay. uh, Chris Cheatham. Um, so I joined, I joined the uh, Asian unit, which was uh, obviously predominantly Japan, Hong Kong, and um, they had no money in Australia, and I ended up researching Australia. So did you move to Australia for the role? 
Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, that, that role was very much in London, but I ended up obviously um, starting to talk to Australian stockbrokers in London. Mm -hmm. um, interesting point of fact, if you think Australians don't get out there, um, at one stage in London there were six US stockbrokers and 13 Australian mm. stockbrokers. And, and Australia was like less than 1% yeah. of the uh, world index at the time. So Australians are very resourceful and uh, we'll, we'll find a way to get to you wherever you are. Um, so I started, to, I started to learn about Australia, thought it was pretty interesting, um, thought I wouldn't mind focusing on it a bit more and I ended up actually going stockbroking mm. um, and, and left the Prudential actually probably far too soon uh, in retrospect but started going stockbroking and really was able to focus a bit more um, over time on, on researching and researching particular areas and sectors in the Australian market. And how did you find, was the role everything you'd hoped for? Um, no. Yeah. Not always. Um, one of the things about Australia is, I mean, particularly in stockbroking in, in the 1980s, it was dreadfully competitive, um, you know, as you can imagine, mm. with 13 in London. So it's not always what you hope because a lot of the time you're having to try and sell something that's half complete. Mm. Yeah. Researching at that time was not just about, you know, actually trying to find something out about the company and value the company and everything else, but a lot of it was about selling it to people. Mm. Um, and that's something... I think, you know, many people find quite difficult. Uh, and, yeah, in, in particular, it's a little bit strange that you spend a lot of time ferreting through companies, you know, doing a lot of work on companies, and then you basically hand over all that information to somebody else mm. to make money out of, and you've actually got to sell it to them as well. It's not always easy. Well, you must have been doing something right because yeah. a few years later, I believe, you... Moved on to AMP. Yeah, I did. I um, I emigrated to Australia in 1987. Um, I worked for an entrepreneurial investor, uh, who um, there, there are a number of entrepreneurial investors who'd set up um, basically cash box funds at that time. The first one was a company called Panfida. Uh, mm. I worked for one called NatCorp Holdings. Um, we had a takeover offer out on the um, 20th of October 1987 for a company called Henderson's Industries, which was uh, a number of times bigger than we were, and um, so um, that got us into a little bit of trouble. But eventually I went stockbroking again in Australia. Um, I did banking and insurance research. If there's, um, if there's one sector where you want to learn, you want to do something that is out of the ordinary, and you want to do something that scares the bejesus out of most other people, be an insurance analyst. Um, because it, it scares people, but it teaches you things about the valuation of other companies that very, very few other sectors do. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. It teaches you that um, an insurance company basically has got, it's got its own equity capital, but then it has ca it's got capital which obviously backs its insurance policies. So uh, if it's a general insurer, obviously it's got the claims reserves, you know, which it's got to invest until those claims come due. It's the same effectively in life insurance as well. Um, it's the same in reinsurance as well, which is the insurance of insurance. Um, it's obviously based around statistics. It's based around actuarial theory. Um, one of the things I did when I joined the pre was to start down the track of being an actuary, but um, that was far too exciting, so I had to give it up. Um, 
But it really, really teaches you about how you actually segment out income streams from companies and how you bust out, you know, how you bust down companies. And obviously, insurance companies tend to have lots of hidden assets. And of course, the worst thing about insurance companies is they tend to have lots of hidden liabilities. Mm. Um, you know, most obviously in, in recent years, you know, things like asbestos liabilities and stuff like that. And so it really, really teaches you how to break down a company into its constituent parts. And that, if you read any of the stuff that I write about, the investments we make, that is an absolutely fundamental part of what I do, is some of the parts valuation analysis. And if you're analysing insurance companies, that is just such a component part of it. Um, you know, you take AMP at the moment, you see these wonderful terms in AMP's reports called embedded value. You know, that's simply you know the discounted value of that book of policies back to the AMP, you know, with assumptions about mortality, morbidity, investment returns, uh, you know, um, lapse rates, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, of an existing book of business, and then you know you you basically say, well, that's the value of the existing business. Obviously, there's a goodwill value that's called the value of new business, and so by learning about that. That has applications across so many other industries, it's not funny. And so it really teaches you how to analyse not just insurance companies, but second-line financial companies, banks, and uh, things like that. So, you know, when I sort of see companies, you know, typically at the moment, or topically at the moment, I should say, like Yellow Brick Road, you know, which is trading at a sort of, you know, 40% discount to, you know, its existing book of business, um, and I'm clearly not the only one who's noticed that, given there's now takeover offer out for the company. They're the kind of things that doesn't scare you away from those kind of things at all. In fact, you embrace them. Yeah, I'd say most people would shun that. They would see that and oh, but yeah, they run them off. Absolutely, and that's you know that that was you know certainly my my spell at County NatWest, which is obviously you know effectively now Citigroup, uh, where I was analysing banks and and insurance companies. Um, you know that that was fantastic because in particular I was analysing banks in the 1990-93 period where, um, you know, you, you had a real trauma for Westpac and, and ANZ in particular for for quite different reasons, and again. This whole some of the parts idea, you know, came to pass in Westpac. If you look at Westpac in in the nine, early 90s, it got in trouble not because the core bank made bad loans. It was in fact all the offshoots of the bank that made bad loans. Uh, Bill Acceptance Corporation, Partnership Pacific, Australian Guarantee Corporation. Um, so that's why you know that you will notice if you ever analyse Westpac, it's absolutely controlled by head office now, because they'll never ever go back to decentralised lending again. Perhaps you could just flesh that out a bit. Yeah. Um, Westpac in the early nineties. Yeah. It's been a long time since we've had a recession in Australia. Touchwood. Yep. Um, perhaps you can describe Westpac at the time of the early nineties and potentially what the outlook was for the bank. Oh. The outlook was potentially insolvency. Let's, you know, let's make that absolutely clear. They had, um, in one year, they had uh, the, the peak write-off year, the peak charge-off year, they had 2.6% of their loan book got charged off in mm. the Baden-Dale for right. debt charge. Yeah. Yeah, remember, at the moment, we're looking at sort of 14 basis points. Mm. So we're looking at a number somewhere in the order you know, of um, 20 times that. Mm. Um, you had a mixture of, um, I mean, most, most of the loans were based around commercial property. 
I mean, uh, 17 plus percent of Westpac's loan book was made up of commercial property. Yeah. And it was because of the decentralised nature of the lending through these sort of merchant banking subsidiaries, um, it was pretty cruddy commercial property mm. lending. Uh, it was at the culmination of a period where we'd had massive pro um, loan growth in Australia because of the entry of the foreign banks in 1986, who, um, yeah, there were 16 of them, you know, and they lent to every budding entrepreneur mm. around, many of whom obviously were, were in commercial property. You had high interest rates. I mean, commercial property development is just not sustainable at interest rates of, you know, 14, 15, 16%. Um, and so you had a complete collapse there, and Westpac in that case were the ones with most exposure. So, yeah, the outlook for Westpac was, you know, was really pretty grim, and they had an emergency rights issue, uh, which was underwritten and, or sub-underwritten by all kinds of, you know, really interesting people. You know, one of the biggest sub-underwriters who got stuck with all their stock was Pioneer Concrete. Uh, you know, I'm not familiar with that company. Uh, under the entrepreneurship of Sir Tristan Antico, you know, so I mean, they, they got stuck with it. Um, and obviously, I mean, that gave the opportunity for, you know, for, for Kerry Packer to come in and take 10% of the bank. And mm. the worst thing Kerry Packer ever did was sell the 10% mm. stake, should have mm. held it. Yeah, it's been a great run since it, then. It's been amazing. But then, I mean, what that taught you as well, I mean, was just that, hey, there are cycles. Um, it taught you about good bank, bad bank. Uh, Westpac didn't go down that route specifically, but I mean, Suncorp most recently did, you know, where you segment off all the rubbish into, um, you know, into one entity. In the US, you had banks effectively splitting into two. Yeah, so it, it taught you one thing about, it taught you one thing about banks, which is basically banks go broke because their assets are no good. Mm. Insurance companies go broke because their liabilities are no good. And so there are two fundamental differences there. So there's just learning, learning and more learning came out of that period of time. Um, you mentioned AMP briefly there. Oh. Uh, it's my understanding that you moved there and you, I did. you managed yep. a substantial amount of money. How did that come, come um, Basically, I'd had enough of stockbroking. Um, you know, in, insurance, you know, in, I, was, I was doing predominantly insurance analysis by 1994. Um, and to be blunt, I was getting a bit bored with it. Um, it. It was hard to explain it to a lot of people. So I decided it was, you know, I'd, I'd sort of had enough of the uh, sell side and I really wanted to go back on the buy side. An opportunity came up at AMP. Um, AMP at that time, if you can believe it or not, Australian equities were split into six teams. Um, and the, the, the team that was supposed to pick up all the dregs turned out to have the two most exciting growth bits of, of Australian equity. Uh, management, which was managing unit trusts uh, and also managing separately managed superannuation portfolios for um, you know big institutional investors, um, you know, and this was the fledgling start of, of the not-for-profits or in industry fund movement. Um, so uh, yeah, I was part of a team of three, and we had the whole market um, to to deal with. Uh, we had a very eclectic uh, three of us. I was very much Mr. Value. Um, I had another guy on the team, Rob Inglis, who was uh, very much Mr. Growth, you know, was great at finding long-term income streams. So we were on, you know, we really got on top of things like Transurban uh, in the early days. We got on top of CSL in the early days. You know, but by the same token, we had a lot of really deep discount asset plays that we invested in uh, as well. You know, had a lot of manufacturing businesses that we invested in and ended up making great money out of them because they got taken over. Mm. Um, 
and Marcus Fanning, who ended up being the head of equities at Colonial, um, you know, basically, you know, he was sort of glue in the middle. Mm. Um, so we did really well. We grew a billion dollars to two billion dollars through inflows and um, and obviously investment performance over about three years. Um, you know, and started to win outside money, um, which is quite ironic. I mean, I think you know one of the, one of the most scathing statistics about AMP now. Um, you can find it, it's page 12 of the uh, 2018 half-year investor report. AMP managed the grand total of $924 million of external equity money. In other words, wow. people out there that have said, AMP, we think you're good at managing Australian equities. They've got $924 million bucks. that's all. Yeah, mm. That's a boutique fund manager. Yeah, it is. And that's, that's, that's the depth to which they've sunk. And a lot of the AMP's problems are, you know, really due to the fact that their investment performance outside of two areas, uh, infrastructure and real estate, has been abominable. Mm. Okay, so n next you you doubled the money in three years, yep. um, and then you had or you were headhunted. Oh, I was headhunted to Rothschild. How did that um, come about? Uh, pretty simple. Rothschild. Um, if you go back to the 19, uh, if you go back to the 1980s, there were two go-go fund managers in Australia, BT and Rothschild. Um, and, um, you know, BT, that was the era of, well, everybody, you know, to be blunt, you know, Rob, Rob Ferguson, uh, Kerr Nielsen, uh, obviously, you know, a whole range of others, uh, Paul Moore. Um, so, and uh, Rothschild were very much a value manager. I mean, obviously, one of their first value managers over here was the late Robert Michael Brown. Um, so, and Rothschild had sort of worked out that the, the way that distribution in fund management was changing and, and had really worked out how to tap into that. They had a very good track record on balance funds, you know, in other words, mm. where there's equities overseas, equities, bonds, etc. Um, but their Australian equity performance had been a bit up and down. Um, anyway, they, they asked me to come in and see if I could uh, do something with it and, and, you know, in broad terms over uh, the five and a bit years I was there, you know, we did. We regenerated the performance. Um, and we did that by sort of really um, focusing on what does value mean? You know, strip it back to the absolute basics. What value means is that, that you're buying a financial asset or a stake in a business at well below what you think it's really worth. If you take that simple sentence you've got to be able to tell me what you think it's worth. Mm. So it's no good saying, well, you know, I, I think X, Y, Z at $3 is cheap. Well, okay, fine, what's it worth? Mm. Or, uh, as I sometimes do, there's a bit of it that is really interesting. Uh, how much am I paying for the jewel in the crown, mm. so to speak? And sometimes those jewel in the crowns are not very comparable to, to other companies. But, you know, you've got to be at least able to tell me if you're buying it at three, is it worth four, five, six, ten? Mm. You know, what's it worth? And so what we did at Rothschild was strip everything down to actually saying, you know, let's put a dollar value, you know, whether it's a mid-range value, of, you know, a sort of high and low case. Let's put a dollar value on each of the companies that we, we think we want to invest in. Uh, and then, you know, quite clearly we can rank those dollar values. Um, we obviously know that some of the ones that are going to have the best potential upside may have the most risk as well, and so obviously in building a portfolio, you have to be a little bit cognizant of that. You know, so you're not going to fill your boots full of something that might be a hefty cyclical, but um, 
you know, obviously will have a fair degree of risk mm. around your valuation because it might be a commodity producer or something like that. So, you know, in doing that, we ended up, you know, you, you end up doing things like, um, you know, at one stage in our portfolio, I mean, two of the biggest weightings we had in our portfolio against the index were as diverse as Macquarie Infrastructure Group, which was the old uh, company that had all the roadways mm. in it, uh, a long-term income stream, which, you know, which we valued, uh, you know, and found it was just fundamentally underpriced. And yet MIM, the old, um, you know, copper miner mm. uh, from Mount Isa that was just you know, sold appallingly um, to Extrata in 2003 at the most outrageous underpricing, you know, to the extent that it underpinned Extrata for years afterwards. You know, we had a very big weighting in that. We had a big weighting in Village Roadshow, right. okay. which was one of the most controversial investments, you know, I've ever had to sit there as a fund manager and defend. Why was it so controversial? Um, a few things. There was quite a lot of debt in it. Um, it. It was a company where the stock market didn't like the management. Um, the management were highly geared at that time um, in, in terms of their stake in Village Roadshow. There was a sort of a, uh, there, there was kind of like a pyramid structure in, privately uh, which maintained their stake in Village Roadshow and I'm sure at the time the equity base of it wasn't very much. Um, there were different income streams came in, there were joint ventures, you know, there, there were, you know, part ownerships of various of the assets at that time, you know, which were basically the cinema... Um, Exhibition chain, cinema distribution, theme parks, etc. Um, yeah, and I think you know, not long after I left, you know, I think in, in two years after I left, the stock went up sixfold. Oh, that'd be right. <laughs> okay, um, so your time at Rothschild that was oh. around about the time of the dot com. Yes, it was. Bust. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that was. Um, that was really interesting because, you know, quite clearly you're a value manager in 1999 and, and even, you know, even when you're looking around and, and you know, you're, you're cognizant that the Australian stock market structure is changing to, to provide a lot more long-term income streams, you know, like airports, roadways, things like that. Um, yeah, it was abundantly clear there were a whole bunch of other things that, that um, you know, just weren't going to make it. Um, you know, you had shell companies, you had miners turning into dot-coms. And, I mean, the, the whole thing was just, uh, in parts, an outrageous bubble. Mm. But what was interesting about that outrageous bubble was that um, as, you know, the e-corps, the Davnets, the sausage softwares and the Wontels mm. were, were going through the roof, at the same time, companies that had really, really strong cash flows, they were really declining in value. So you had a two-pronged thing taking place, which you might argue is not dissimilar to what's happening at the moment, uh, you know, whereby growth stocks were just you know, going, going up in price all the time and value stocks were actually being beaten down. So you got to a situation at the extreme where News Corporation was 16% of the index and you, know, you had to make a call on, um, to be blunt, your career... Or your um, your ethos, and that's a situation I think that yeah, it's very interesting for fund managers because you you hear a lot about people talking about career risk. Um, there's a fabulous fund manager at that time uh, decided to take on quite a bit of career risk. His name is Greg Matthews. He ran Macquarie's um, 
uh, equities uh, management mm-hmm. at that time in Australia. And Greg had no exposure to News Corp because he just couldn't, you know, he couldn't fathom out that News Corp, with uh, the valuations it was trading on at that time, was a worthwhile investment. It was 16% the index, it carried on going up, and, um, you know, that led Greg's funds to underperform. Uh, it was all in the paper. And eventually, you know, Greg left Macquarie and then set up a successful independent business for himself. Um, most fund managers basically ended up indexing New School because mm. it was just an easy bet. But you had 16% of your money then in something that, that basically you didn't really believe was worth the price it was trading at. And a lot of people took only incremental bets against it, you know, sort of to have 14% of a fund in it, not 16 yeah, it's interesting the agency risk there. Um, yeah, we still see it today. Obviously, it's you, you do. It's it's one of the most. I mean, one of the most interesting things about fund management, particularly in Australia, where it's so competitive. You know, so many Australian equity managers, um, and it's something I think you really latch onto as you get a little bit older. If you work for a name brand company, yeah, you know, name brand fund manager, uh, you know, who maybe remunerate you extremely well, that that has an impact on your portfolio. You know, there is no bones about it. That will impact on your portfolio because you will not take extreme risk because if you do and you underperform, then you're going to lose your highly paid job. If you're an independent person like me, mm. what's an index? Yeah, I'm just looking for I'm just looking for good companies that are that are very underpriced, and more and more and more, um, you know, major superannuation funds know they can buy. They can buy the index for you know a handful of basis points a year of fee. Um, they can put a bit of a slant on that index if they want, and then they can find people that that, that the words career risk don't you know that are not in their dictionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to then go out and go find you know the you know, really really undervalued companies else, elsewhere in the market where they're micro caps and where they've got a growth or value mm-hmm. slant. So the next part of your career is very interesting to me. Um, in 2010, you set up Stiletto Investments. Yeah. Firstly, why was it called Stiletto? And secondly, what was it? Okay, Stiletto Investments. Um, I had um, the, the origin and the genesis of Stiletto was that I had a bunch of friends who basically you know, used to ask me, you know, should I buy BHP or should mm. I buy ANZ or whatever. I do not like giving individual stock recommendations to people because I don't know what their risk profile is. Uh, even if they're friends, I don't know, you know, that they might have to sell, mm-hmm. um, you know, quickly to you know, buy something else. And so what I said to them was, look, rather than you do that, why don't you just put a small amount of money, and I mean a small amount of money, you know, so we we're talking 20s, 30s, $50,000, um, into a private investment company, and I had, I had a sort of leftover proprietary company that had a few franking credits in and my, uh, and my kids had some money in it. Uh, so I said, why don't you put a bit of money into that? And so we changed the name of the company, which reflected my kids' names, uh, to another name. Now, the first people that came to me were all females. All right. Okay. okay. And so we wanted to find something that reflected the fact that the first people that came to me were all ladies. And believe it or not, and I couldn't believe this, um, the name Stiletto Investments was actually available. And of course, it you know it, it created a lot of fun because of uh, an extremely well-known building uh, that resides in Camperdown, just in the inner west of Sydney. Uh, and if you've been there, you shouldn't have been. <laughs> Okay, so, so 
uh, that, that's how the name came about. And, and what it was is a private investment company. Yep. And we built it up with people just putting odds and sods of money in. Um, we, um, we basically invested in non-mainstream things um, and then occasionally in mainstream things when they were very, very cheap. Uh, we had the benefit, obviously, of starting in 2010, um, mm. you know, post the, the worst of the GFC. Um, we leveraged it, and we also uh, we did um, start using short selling from about 2012, 13 onwards as well. Um, I mean, the upshot of that is it did about 22% a year. Um, and the, the original investors who came in, they got all their original money back in fully frank mm. dividends. Um, so... And I created it using retail product, so uh, retail derivative availability mm -hmm. through uh, CFDs, um, global investments, again, through both CFDs and, and uh, more recently, obviously, the cash uh, way that you can invest uh, globally as well. So, you know, we just really, really built that up and, and you know, we, we had a number of sort of really interesting things that we did in there, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that was, that was smaller company. So it was as simple as you getting some uh, platforms or brokerage accounts and Absolutely. investing in your yeah. family. And, it, and it's, it, it is the most simple company structure imaginable. So it's just a proprietary company. I ran it. I kept the books. I did all the tax returns uh, and, and everything else. And, you know, we, we sent a quarterly report to uh, what turned out to be the 14 investors who came mm. in. Um, and, I mean, the one interesting thing about it, even though it was a small private company, um, writing a quarterly report is just a sensational discipline. Mm. Um, you know, I see a lot of guys who, who are traders. I'm not a trader. I'm an investor. But I see a lot of guys that are traders and, and they write a daily log for themselves in terms of um, not so much how they've gone, but, but how they evaluated a trading situation and what they did. Um, I'd obviously, as an investor, I'm not interested in that from a daily point of view, but the discipline of writing mm. is, um, is one that I just really encourage people to do. What you find is, I mean, if you, if you read the blurb that comes out from a professional funds management organisation, particularly a big one, um, I can tell you the first thing they, they do in these organisations when you become a portfolio manager is they take your pen off you <laughs> so that all that good stuff that's in your mind, all that stuff about telling stories, you know, which is a great way to engage with people to get the ordinary person in the street to understand about this particular investment, they take that away from you. Mm. And you just get all this fodder you know, that's, that's produced by the marketing team that goes out. You know, and I think that's a skill. If you're a, if you're an investor, you must not lose that skill of being able to tell the story. You should be able to tell, literally anybody, you know, why it is you're invested in a particular company, and do it in kind of half a page. Mm. I obviously in preparation for this meeting, I I read a number of your mm. your reports and in quarterlies, and. They were very very succinct, um, and they're very enjoyable to read too. You yeah, inject absolutely. Some, some humour in there, and yep. um, what I was surprised about was that they were, they are shorter than some of the other yeah you know, content bombardment that we get from other yeah. funds or other investors. It was really succinct and mm. really really good stuff. I think look, I think the essence of anybody who is professing to take your money, be a fiduciary for your money, is to explain to you what you've done with it. 
And I always find the best way to do that is to use stock examples. Okay, and stock examples are not just, are not, oh, we bought this stock at a dollar and it's gone to two, aren't we fantastic? Mm. Yeah, it's about actually explaining you bought it at a dollar. Why'd you buy it at a dollar? What's the underlying thesis behind you actually buying this company at a dollar? And that's why, you know, I try to spend a little bit of time each quarter, um, you know, on two or three stock examples to actually say, hey, we bought into this company at this price. We think it's worth a lot more than that, but this is why, okay? Um, I mean, one of, one of the most enjoyable things I ever did as a professional, if you will, <laughs> portfolio manager at Rothschild was, uh, I remember distinctly, I, I used to do, obviously, some presentations and occasionally used to actually do presentations for, you know, real-life mum and dad, um, you know, for a financial planner or someone. I remember doing one in the... Um, in uh, the suburbs of Adelaide uh, one evening and in a sort of equivalent of an RSL club. So we had, you know, lots of real mums and dads mm. who, you know, do, do not look at the stock market day in, day out, but, you know, came along. By the time they'd left, they, they were all absolutely in, enamoured with this company, uh, Macquarie Infrastructure Group, which obviously owned uh, a whole bunch of toll roads. And they all thoroughly understood by the end of the evening what the attraction of investing in a toll road was. Um, and they could even explain to you by the end of the evening what variable charging toll charges were. Mm. Um, and they grasped it straight away, that this was just Fantastic. an unbelievable business. Uh, and then I always found as well, the, you know, the essence of this thing is most people given a little bit of time, can understand that business A is a really good business and business B is not a very good business. Yeah, they, they can work that out. They can actually, by and large, work that out themselves. What they can't do is value them. Mm. Yeah, so you can say business A is a fantastic business, but what's it worth? And, and that's where I come in, mm. if you will. Yeah, they're probably every bit as good as me at working out you know, whether A or B is the better business, but you know, I can value them. And that's what the average person in the street, by and large, can't do. I'm interested to know more about your step off to Stiletto yep. and uh, pun not intended, and uh, yep. how uh, your initial investors, your friends and your family, yep. received that, and, and what you were telling them, and yep. the feedback that they were giving you. And then more more broadly, I see uh, many investors go down the route of they pursue a professional career in investing, do quite well for themselves. Yep. And they think, I'll go and do this for myself privately and put some money in a company yep. and do it myself. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on those two areas. Absolutely. Um, in terms of how it was received, I mean, it was actually really good because if you, you know, they, they really engaged with me in sort of understanding what was going on in markets. I mean, you know, they, these people had other day jobs, mm. um, you know, as varied as selling vintage aircraft to uh, running <laughs> vineyards. But so they're really interested in what's going on in financial markets and they start to really engage with you and understand as to what goes on and particularly when they know once every three months, you know, they're gonna get you know, they're gonna get a reasonable explanation as to, you know, markets and you know what's going on and why we're invested here and not there. So that was actually really well received. I mean obviously the investment performance is very well received. Mm. I should stress, and I think this is really important, um, the investment performance was volatile. You know, we had quarters when we were down 23%. We've had quarters okay. where we were up 24 
okay, in a quarter because don't forget we're geared, mm-hmm. we're in smaller companies, uh, in, you know, as well. So that, you know, it's going to fluctuate. So if there's something that tells you that you must be a long-term investor, surely, you know, surely it's that, okay? So it was actually uh, very, very well received. Stepping off into... Um, into Stiletto, um, I'd been on the boards of quite a few smaller companies. I, um, you know, generally microcap companies, usually ones that needed a bit of a help. Um, into, you know, from from Stiletto and, and that structure, and then sort of moving on from there, um, I found company structures are really quite, you know, they're, they're very cost effective. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a very, very easy way to be open. Don't forget, even in a private company. So you've got maybe people that don't know you very well. If you have a private proprietary company and they own shares in that, it's public. They can see they own the shares because it's on the ASIC database. Mm. You, you know, and if it's not on the ASIC database, then you know, something's, something's going on. Yeah. Okay? They're cheap to run. Okay? $254 a year for the registration. So they're not expensive to run in that sense. It's up to you whether you get them audited or not. Uh, I didn't have mine audited. So I can assure you the only expense, because I ran it for nothing, Mm. um, the only expense to the investors, um, uh, apart from the interest on the margin loans, was... Two hundred and fifty-four bucks a year to ASIC. That was it. Yes, nothing was it. What a what a cheap structure. Mm. What a great structure. I've then taken that, you know, obviously into you know a little bit the same into the public sphere. When you were setting this up, obviously in the wake of the GFC, mm. can you reflect now on that time and what you're seeing and how you personally were reacting? Yeah. Um, the GFC is. Um, you know, I've been, I've been an investor for 37 years and, I mean, there's certainly been nothing like the GFC. Mm. I mean, I was obviously around on 20 October 87, you know, where, where the market fell 40% in mm. a day. Yeah. But um, the GFC, there's not been anything like it um, and, you know, I don't particularly want to live through anything else like it because um, it was a complete gluing up of credit markets and so... Yeah, everyone knows once you take credit away, then the world comes to an abrupt mm. standstill. And the only other time, and I was still in short pants when this happened, was really 1974, you know, when, when credit markets glued up then. Um, so, yeah, the GFC was amazing in, in, in the sense that it's just one of the biggest, you know, bargain giveaways of, of securities, you know, you, you'll ever see in your lifetime. Um, simply because people didn't have the money to buy them, or very few mm. people had the money to buy them, and that was that was obviously right across the globe. Um, I was in London in in late uh, two thousand and eight. You know, I remember distinctly then. You know, the UK market had been absolutely flattened. Um, you know, there, there were great companies there trading on you know single digit PEs and very very low you know double digit PEs. Obviously, the same in the US, which had bottomed in November. Mm. Um, and Australia took a bit, bit longer to bottom. And so, you know, I, I certainly went through a period where I sort of really wanted to be very aggressive uh, at investing. Um, yeah, and uh, as I've described otherwise, I, I decided to commit a certain amount of money to the market and I divide that money into six because I thought, you know, in six months' time, if uh, 
you know, if it's if it's still going on, well, um, you know, the bank's going to have more people to worry about than me. Mm. <laughs> um, so, you know, I commit a lot of money to the market at that stage and, and you know, I put it in very, very um, dis in a disciplined fashion uh, over, you know, basically it turned out to be about a four and a bit month period. Um, yeah, and that works out extremely well. And, you know, you're able to buy stocks, you know, now at a fraction of the price they currently are. Um, the biggest issue for me, I think, is actually then... Um, you know, understanding when to divest some of those companies. Mm. And I, I, I'm, you know, quite readily admit I probably sold some of them a bit too early. Yeah. Can you can you draw on any specific examples? Yeah. I mean, the 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 the, the best things I've seen out there. I mean, the you know the, the the classic example of all time for me, which I've uh, spoken about elsewhere, is is Magellan. Um, you know, Magellan is trading at half asset backing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Asset backing is sort of 66, the shares were 35, 40 at the time, you know, Mackay and Douglas were on board, you know, building their fledgling uh, funds management organisation, you know, they'd started off very well and then the shares had just fallen in a heap. Um, so, yeah, virtually any fund management company, I mean, you could buy BT at a buck seventy. they got down to. Um, some of the property stocks were really fascinating at that time because they'd had too much debt going into the GFC, you know, and they recapitalised a couple of times. Um, all these people buying West Farmers at 52 bucks for the Coles float off. Well, you know, you should have been there in 2008 when you could subscribe to the rights issue at $13.50 when they bought Coles. Um, you know, and nearly killed themselves mm. doing it. There are just um, when when you get to the bottom of a really filthy bear market, the things that are usually the cheapest are financial stocks and real asset owners with debt. And then and then it's a matter of, particularly in the real asset owners, so property stocks and things like that with debt. It's a matter of can you get in a sufficiently large discount to uh, net asset backing that the inevitable recapitalisation issue dilutes you? But, you know, if you have a look at, um, you know, people who make really good money from the bottom of that, um, you know, uh, people like, you know, Alan Gray Investments, mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, they bought a whole slew, almost a package of beaten up property trusts that were trading at, you know, half asset backing or less, mm. you know, and they were going to lose one, you know, one or two will go broke, mm. but, you know, some others will make it through. They're the kind of things you buy then, and then also you should get the opportunity to buy, you know, fantastic cash flow producers at just low multiples. Mm. So, it, you honestly, you end up like, you know, you're a kid in a candy store. Again, I've said this before, but I just exhort people to go read Roger Lowenstein's mm. um, book about Warren Buffett and particularly the 1970s period because that's the nearest thing to this, mm. um, you know, where basically, you know, the, the guy can't get enough money to invest because there's just so many bargains out there. There's stuff everywhere across every sector. But they're the kind of ones you tend to look for, you know, fund managers and things like that because they've got triple gearing. Mm. It sounds it's um, it's a very obviously a very interesting period to be a value manager. Yeah. When you think about the market today and valuations. Yep. I mean, you say you don't want to go back to it, but do you long for those types of? Oh God, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And how would how do you prepare for that? I mean, not, not to say that's yeah. inevitable, but market crashes do come. Yeah. How do you prepare? You've got to you've got to basically either have so, you know you've got to have cash or debt availability. Mm -hmm. So you've you've got to make sure that you've got. Um, 
the funds available, no matter where those funds come from, you know, when you know when the time is, you know, when, when the time actually uh, happens. Um, people talk about not market timing. Um, I mean, the key thing to me is if at this stage of the cycle you're running a long-only portfolio with lots and lots of margin debt, you know, I would delicately suggest to you that that's not an optimal position to mm. be in. So that you know, what you've got to really do is that. Um, you know, if, if you're going to be long equities through whatever cycle, then you know, as market cycles you know get higher and higher and higher, you've got to prune your portfolio of rubbish. You've got to make sure that you're not carrying concepts. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just carrying real things that are still trading at uh, a valuation that is respectable, mm-hmm. um, and so that you're harvesting a little bit, you're harvesting cash, so you can put that cash to work at an appropriate period of time. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the, the next stage for Stiletto and yep. what, what is now known as E72. Yes. And uh, it's listed on the Na- National Stock Exchange. Yep. Can you explain, because this is really interesting to me because I see a lot of, uh, like I said earlier, s- successful investors that go go yep. private and they stay private. And yes. Managing private, private money, money for, for yep. family or what have you. Why did you go, why have you gone back? I found, when I looked around... I found no one else was doing what I was doing in Stiletto. Okay. Now, what was unique about it? First of all, gearing. Okay. Mm. Yeah, we're prepared to go to sort of four or five times gearing. And can you explain how that works? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, through the use of uh, derivatives and through the use, uh, so synth- what's called synthetic leverage, and through the use of financial leverage, margin loans. Mm-hmm. Um, we could gear our capital, um, you know, up to you know, up to many multiples of the equity base. Um, you do not find um, listed company product that does that. Mm. You know, you might find a, a 130-30 hedge fund type or long short type strategies. Mm. Secondly, there were some long short strategies listed on the market. But as I've just said, they were, you know, to be blunt, I thought they were pretty, you know, they, you know, they, they didn't take extraordinary risks. Mm. Yeah, they didn't go to, you know, the more obvious, uh, not so much extremes, but, you know, levels that you could reasonably go to. So I figured if we were doing so well privately, why don't we actually just take that strategy and actually put it into a listed company? Now, why did we do it on the NSX and why have we done it so small? Mm. Um, First of all, the NSX, I found a structure which was a pure shell, which had quite a lot of franking credits in it. Um, and I w- was able, through agreement with the directors of the shell company, to you know, basically put new money in, pay out the, the uh, amounts of money owed to them. Uh, and it was a fair deal for the both of us. And I got access to a bunch of franking credits. So we started out really small. Yeah, to give you an idea how pitifully small, mm-hmm. uh, between my wife and I put in 350 grand, of which 100 went to the old directors to pay them off, you know, for mm-hmm. the for the creditors uh, that, that they were owed. And right. I got my friend, I got I got a bunch of friends to put in 100 grand between them. Now the reason why was I was actually going away on holiday for a few months, and I didn't want them to put in decent amounts of money. Um, so we 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 built it up. From, from that absolutely tiny company with, you know, which had 350 grand of investable capital. Uh, we built it up through placements to sophisticated investors. And we've done it fairly slowly because if I raise $20 million of equity, 
and I'm prepared to go to five times gearing, I've got to find 80 million bucks of synthetic derivative capacity and, and or financial margin capacity. That's not easy to mm. do just like that without spending an awful lot of money right at the outset and potentially not getting there. So what we did was we did a backdoor listing and we said we're going to grow this slowly so that our leverage capacity uh, to go long short will keep pace with our equity base. Um, so gradually we, we raised you know, small amounts of equity over the first uh, 12 to 15 months. We then uh, acquired Stiletto because a number of the people who put money in Stiletto were shareholders in East 72. So that, that, that built our equity base up to you know, a bit over 5 million and then we've done some, you know, some recent placements. Um, and um, you know, it's, it's all gone from there and we're growing gradually so that you know, our, our equity can grow into our overall debt capability. Mm -hmm. So you know, we've, we've, got, um, you know, we've got the ability with our equity base at the moment to have you know, 20 million bucks plus worth of exposures, mm -hmm. long and short. So when people hear this, they, they probably think there's gearing yep. four times, that yep. the, the warning bells are going off in their head. So yep. how would you, what would you say to people that were considering making an investment like this or yep. investing with you? What would you say to them how to think of the fund or okay. the, the how company? To, how to think of the company is basically, number one, it should not be your core investment, quite clearly. You should have other investments mm -hmm. as well. This is, you know, this is not a core uh, equities portfolio, it is a long short portfolio. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, don't forget that the gearing works in terms of long and short exposure. Um, we have been, um, you know, it, probably our most extreme positions were late January this year, 2018, uh, when every dollar invested in, in, in our company gave you a minus dollar 35 exposure to equities. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we basically were net short equities, so mm. that um, uh, e effectively the, um, uh, you know, our, our capital uh, was, was uh, geared up by another 35% uh, over and above it, its normal equity, but that gearing was actually to a downturn mm -hmm. in, in indices, assuming everything moved in line with an index. So that, in theory, if the index went, went up 10%, we would lose 13 and a half, mm -hmm. okay, if, we, if everything performed in line with an index. Correspondingly, of course, if the index went down 10%, we'd make 13 and a half percent. People probably hear that. It sounds a lot of like a lot of volatility. Um, in fact, it was at the time, um, and, and of course, if you look at what happened in February, uh, we basically were long volatility at a time when volatility was so cheap. Mm. And then, of course, in February, volatility exploded in the first week of February, um, and you know our portfolio return in February was fifteen and a half percent roughly. Yeah. In one month. Mm. So, does E72 charge fees? Because I understand that you take a very modest. No, we don't. Um, we're we're internally managed, okay. uh, which basically means the the directors of the company are responsible for the management of of, of the company. Um, I'm the one only one of the directors that's responsible for actually investing the money. Um, the other two are responsible for the sort of compliance oversight of that, if you will. So we say we're going to stick within certain 
limits in mm -hmm. terms of stock exposure limits and overall leverage limits. So they get reports to show that we're doing that or, or if there's an exception, why? Yep. Um, so we have two lots of costs which investors in, in the company have to bear. There are costs that they cannot get away from, so we'll call them non-discretionary. Mm -hmm. um, there are three non-discretionary costs in a public company, which are uh, the audit, um, the listing fees, and the share registry fees. You can't run a public company without any of those three costs. Mm. There are, then the non uh, there are then the discretionary costs, and the most obvious of those are director's fees. Uh, and other expenses, you know, do you run an office, you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for, uh, for our company, the non-discretionary costs are roughly about 50 grand a year. Yeah. Um, and then the, not, uh, the discretionary costs, are the directors, we ch each director gets 20 grand a year, including me. Mm. So I only take 20 grand a year and then there's Very all expenses for, yeah, there's all expenses for travel and, and things like that. Um, I maintain the office out of my pocket because I, you know, I invest my own money. As mm. I have, you know, a lot of money in East 72. My family owns about 28% of it, uh, but I have some other investments as well, which are broadly in line with how East 72 is run. Um, and I do some other work as well, so I, I pay for the office, which is a very modest accommodation indeed. Um, so I've kept the cost down because obviously we want to build the company up. If you've got, you know, six million bucks of equity. You know, you, you can't load that out with costs. And I think one of the things I'm really quite zealous about, and I'm actually really thrilled to see someone else is having a go at this, one of the things I'm zealous about is, is a lot of guys, they, you know, they, they, they go out and they're out in fund management and they set up a structure, they set up a trust structure. Mm. Welcome to a world of phenomenal expenses. You know, you're basically employing, you know, people to audit it. You've got to have a custodian. You've got to have a responsible entity. Um, that brings with it cost. And, you know, you, you end up basically people with, with small amounts of money saying, hey, oh, I've only got $30 million. I can't make it pay. That's nonsense. Mm -hmm. You can make $30 million pay. You've just got to have it in the right structure and you've got to have the right remuneration structure. And if you're going to start with small amounts of money, you've got to accept that if you're managing small amounts of money, you are not going to be paid like the people that are managing billions of dollars. You've got to put in two or three years, you know, or more maybe, of earning not a lot of money, you know, earning under well under what the market value for your skills and expertise is. So what I found is that a company structure is really, really good for doing that. What I've also found is um, a listing on the NSX is really good for doing that as well. So okay. I've got one. There are a few other little investment companies listed on the NSX. I'm and the reason the NSX is great is you don't need 15 million bucks of equity. If you're a no-name but smart, young fund manager and you've got a few people to back you but not enough to raise 15 million bucks of equity but you could raise five six seven eight why would you not do it on the nsx you can manage it internally you can be remunerated alongside your performance and you don't need to raise the 15 and the benefit for your investors is you've got a publicly listed company, it's got to be audited, mm. it's got to be open, you've got the ability to communicate with them in whatever fashion you want. 
Um, so, you know, I did this one with East 72. There's a company called Hamilton Securities, uh, where, um, you know, absolutely one of the best investors in Australia right. uh, was the controlling shareholder and has decided um, he, he doesn't want to use the structure for anything else. Uh, that investor is Fred Willard from uh, Samuel Terry mm-hmm. Asset Management. Uh, a more eclectic brain mm-hmm. in Australian equity management you will not find. Um, and so uh, they had a capital return, but Fred's still the controlling shareholder, or Samuel Terry is. And there's a young guy from Brisbane called Mitch Dorney. He's got two extraordinary credentialed uh, minority investors in his little company. Um, one's called Sir Ron Briley, mm-hmm. and the other is uh, Ron Langley, who... Um, has sort of invested alongside Briley over the years. And, you know, Mitch is basically regenerating Hamilton Securities, putting some stocks in, and he's got various other people who are putting small amounts in. So I think he ends up with about four million bucks of capital in it by the time they finish. The meeting's on the 27th of August. That's great to see. Mm. And I I just hope the NSX can see itself as, as giving a role to other people of that ilk you know, particularly, you know, maybe younger people that are, you know, that, that are good investors but need to get a start, um, you know, to, to set up these structures and then, you know, as they grow and as they are able to place out more stock and then maybe do a prospectus issue, then, of course, they might get to the magic $15 million hmm. hurdle and be able to graduate to the ASX yeah, great. Uh, and get a wider thing. That's important. It, it's using the NSX as a proper role as a second market. Some of the feedback that I've had since we had Tony Hanson on the show from EGB yeah. Capital um, was along those lines of people wanting to know how, how, how this can be done. And Yeah, yeah. Tony's, Tony's uh, you know, Tony started, you know, in, 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 in a sense, in a, in a similar way to my stiletto. He, he's, he grew his to be quite a bit bigger than mine, um, which is basically a proprietary company. Mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. And as long as you communicate with your investors, it's good. But if you want the next step up, um, you know, you could have gone down the track of basically having a, a listing on the NSX because it's not an expensive conveyance mm. at all. People that tell you that it costs $300,000 minimum to run an ASX-listed company, that's, that's nonsense. It doesn't. That's just, you know, that's just flagrant, um, mm. you know waste of, of investors' money. It costs nothing like that. You know, particularly if you've got the skills, the wherewithal and are prepared to work hard. You know, I keep the accounts for this company. And you know, they're audited and as usual for the second year running, we are the first NSX company to put out its full year audited results, you know, on the uh, you know, first week of August this year. Last year they were all done and dusted by the end of July. So it can be done. Can be done. Okay, that's great. I was hoping now to move a bit, took the conversation more towards your investment process with yeah. S72. Uh, I know a number of the listeners will be very keen to hear your opinion on some of these uh, investment ideas that yeah. I've got here. Um, and I should back this up by saying that there was a great piece done on you and E72 in the AFR not too long ago, Yep. Um, which can be accessed on your site, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Yes. Um, and there were some interesting names in there, so I'll throw a few of them at you, and um, perhaps you can talk about, we'll start with the sh- maybe the short positions, yep. and perhaps you can talk about how that came to be, what you were looking for, and how you went about valuing yep. these um, positions. So the first one um, is Tesla. Yes. Tesla sort of encompasses just about everything you want to see in a short. Okay. Yeah. 
it's got direct comparables. Okay, there's plenty of listed car companies out there in the world. We've had an investment in the past in Fiat Chrysler, yeah, which has been largely the cheapest of them. So that you know that Tesla's enterprise value per vehicle produced, it, it, it's not, it is multiple beyond multiples of any company, any other car company on the planet. Okay, it's trying to revolutionise the world, but guess what? So is every other car company on the planet. They're all building electric vehicles. Mm at differing price points, you know, from Chevy Bolts up to some of the things BMW and Daimler are going to offer. Um, so to start with, it makes no sense to have, you know, at, at the current price of, you know, 320 bucks, there's 170 million shares on issue, you know, so, you know, the, the thing's got an equity market value of, what, 54 billion, and it's got 10 billion of on-balance sheet debt. So the valuation is cuckoo. You know, you have to believe this company is going to be the sole dominant player in electric vehicles, and that ain't going to happen. Secondly, um, if you have a company that has an outrageously high stock price, then you expect management to be issuing shares to take advantage of that, particularly if they have a cash flow negative company. This company doesn't do that, so there's a problem. Mm. Okay. Thirdly. There's no way that you can see this company reaching cash flow, even break even in the near future, uh, particularly if they want to double their, their vehicle production capacity. Fourthly, the infrastructure around this company is pitiful. It's falling down. You, know, you don't have car companies with production lines in tents. And the worst thing about Tesla, and if you've ever invested in even things like AP Eagers, Mm. You know, on, on the Australian mm. stock market or any other, you know, car sales company, you know, these guys sell cars at next to no profit for one reason, which is to pick up the annuity stream of the service mm. benefits that you're going to give to them in the future. Well, Tesla has no service capability at the moment. You know, if you look around, you know, if you prang your Tesla, unlucky, because it'll take you three months to get it back on the road again because the parts aren't there. So that everything you see about Tesla, um, you know, you can see there's no justification whatever for the equity value. And now, it doesn't mean that the company doesn't have a role to play. It doesn't mean the company will necessarily go bankrupt. Okay? It just means the equity value is just disproportionately stupid relative to any future cash flow that this company can actually produce. When you then add on top of it, what's brilliant about the internet age is the ability to analyse Tesla from Sydney. You, know, you have people flying drones over the factory, you have people flying drones over their uh, logistics capabilities and everything else, so you can actually see what's going on, you know, and because, you know, clearly it's such an interesting stock. But Tesla's just got every red flag you've possibly got, the biggest of which is basically massive negative cash flow into the future. And when you look, uh, you look at the balance sheet and you can see quite clearly if they carry on the way they've been, then they're going to run out of money in six months. Okay. And it, it also belies, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've said earlier in this podcast if you want to analyse companies, be an insurance analyst. The other thing about analysing companies is please, 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 and I used to teach, by the way, uh, for Finzia, I used to teach the um, 
advanced equity analysis. I used to teach company modelling to people. Mm -hmm. And please understand what cash flow is. <laughs> please understand how a cash flow statement works because it's far more important than any other bit mm -hmm. of you know, the, the mechanism. And I'm, I am amazed at people's inability to read Tesla's cash flow statement. People's inability to see that in the last quarter they strung out their creditors for another 500 million bucks in a quarter, which is why the cash on hand looks so good. Mm. It's definitely one that polarises people. We've got the the, oh. the tech folk on one side yep. that say it's going to change the world, and then we have the investors who perhaps maybe can be described as the realists. Absolutely. The, you know... I have no, I have no problem. I mean, you know, I've ridden in a Tesla. Yeah, fantastic. It's great. I can understand that people want a car that's going to change the world. Yeah, that's fantastic as well. But the simple fact is, they can't make these damn cars at a profit, mm. and they certainly can't make cars at a profit that are going to be available to the ordinary person in the street. Yeah, there are masses of orders for the thirty-five thousand dollar US version of the Model Three. They can't produce it. Mm. Okay, if you want a hundred thousand dollar car. Yeah, absolutely. But there's only a, you know there's a, there's a relatively small market for mm. that kind of you know, expensive car. So I can understand how people with stars in their eyes say what a great product it is. But I'm sorry, you know they can't produce it at a profit at the current stage, and they're going to run out of money before they can, unless mm. something gives. There was something interesting you touched on, and this is aside from Tesla, but something you touched on um, was the the amazing way that social media has changed the research process and yes. access to information. Um, I read in a note that you put out um, this idea that it's changing the research industry and your ability to access information. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So does that generate a lot of your ideas or do you... Do you I get... Um, how does that work? What it does is it, it sort of stimulates me to think about an idea, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean... It, it, I, you know, I, I read. You know, I read a lot of hedge fund newsletters, which are readily available on the net. They weren't five years ago or ten years ago. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I mean, um, I'll give you. I mean, certainly. The, I mean, the ones that I find most interesting. I mean, the other hedge funds out there. I mean, I love reading Horizon Kinetics because the way they the way they think about the world is just fantastic. Mm. I mean, they've been sort of. Yeah, they've been they've been going berserk about ETFs and their distorting role on security and pricing. Um, I love there's a small one a guy called Scott Miller who has a thing called Greenhaven Road. Um, I, I really you know I, I really enjoy reading that. Uh, my favourite letter only comes out once a year, um, <laughs> and it's only about six pages, but it's just it's just a litany of brilliant value ideas. Um, it's a company called Overseas Asset Management, which is based in uh, the Caribbean. Uh, the guy that runs it's called um, Des Kench, and you know, so he has, you know, I, I, I got six really good ideas mm. out of that over two wow. years. I then I researched them all myself. Yeah. I should stress and and agreed with his thesis and basically made great money out of four of the six the best one of which was an Italian roadway company, which I deconsolidated two other companies in a joint venture out of to establish the fact mm. I was buying roadways on an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of four. Wow. It's interesting, that idea yeah. generation uh, and, the, and the initial process. Um, what I found illuminating from the AFR article was the depth of your research and yep. what you're, the extent you're willing to go to to really understand the competitive positions yep. of businesses. And a name that got thrown around was Uber. Yes. And the 
I suppose the crux of the article was that perhaps the idea and the narrative bias there, maybe it's been overdone. Oh. And what was written was that you spent time as an Uber driver. Yeah. Um, perhaps you can shed some light on that and uh, what it led you to in terms yeah. of a long position. Absolutely. Um, one of the most critical things to start with, okay, to actually take that step um, one of the things I pride myself on is, is I do not have an ego. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how would you like it if a few people knew you and you were Uber driving and you happened to pick up somebody that knew you? Mm-hmm. Andy, if you hit on hard times, mate, you've got to drive. <laughs> you've got to drive. I, I didn't care less what people thought. Yeah. Okay. okay. And that's a, to me, if you're going to be a really good ferrety investor, and I don't care what your style is, whether it's growth or, or value or whatever, mm. okay, you've got to be prepared to you leave the ego ego behind and you go to places other people don't want to go to. Okay. Mm. So what I found with Uber is, I mean, everybody knows about the gig economy as a consumer. You know, you've got a cheap ride from A to B. You've got mm. cheap delivered pizza. Um, you know, I gather now in Singapore you can get sort of rice and noodles delivered to your desk for four bucks. You know, and, and what, what's increasingly happening with the gig economy is the same thing that happened with mobile phones in the early days of mobile phones. You know, basically people sell you stuff at a great big loss because they want to put everybody else out of business and then, you know, they can put up the price and they claim the market. Well, everybody's hit on that strategy in the gig economy. So what I wanted to see is, well, how does that really work in practice? Mm. Okay, and so the only way to do it is who are the suppliers in the gig economy? It's people who need a job. So I, I did Uber driving and said, does this work for the drivers? At the time, the answer to that was barely yes. It was when Uber first came to Sydney. Okay, mm-hmm. You could basically make 20-something an hour out of it. But then you, know, you were running traffic lights, you were picking up traffic fines, you were... Um, running out, you know, you were dinging your car, you, you know, obviously had to pay a lot more petrol. Your car was doing a lot of kilometres in a urban environment, not a lot of kilometres in a country environment, so mm. a lot harder on the car. Um, so what I was finding is, yeah, it sort of paid and it gave you flexibility, but it wasn't that great. Now I know, categorically, I spoke to a new, I spoke to a new driver who took me to the airport uh, three weeks ago, and he and a mate basically own a car between them and, and they run it pretty much seven days a week. Their takings are down 35% on where they were a year ago. Well, okay. Why? Well. Why? More suppliers. Suppliers swamp demand. So there's a lot more time between each of the jobs. The jobs are shorter, you know, because people are sort of using it and abusing it. It's exactly the same thing has gone on in a lot of other gig thing, you know, gig economy things. You know, we had those stupid bikes on the street of Sydney, which have now all but disappeared as well because they couldn't possibly make money. You're starting to see the food delivery companies, you know, one's gone out of business already. You know, how do they make money out of that? It was about saying, is this stuff sustainable, and is it sustainable? Not so much for Uber because it's not a listed company. Okay, but is it sustainable for the people doing it? And I came to the conclusion the answer to that was no. Okay, and that people would start dropping it and there'd be a big turnover of drivers. What I also figured out was that um, with Uber, obviously you've got surge pricing Mm. and people are smart enough to arbitrage surge pricing against fixed pricing. And all it was going to take was the cab companies to get a better app, a better service, a cleaner cab and a brand name 
um, and use their technology properly to, to get up the curve to, if not match Uber, be a sensible alternative and the whole market will have grown. People you know, readily take personal transport now mm. in a bigger way than they did even five years ago. And, of course, the cab company was cab charge. And the valuation of cab charge at the time was just absolutely ludicrous. Um, they had a lot of surplus assets on the balance sheet, which they've since sold off. Uh, they were overvalued on the balance sheet, which mm. I was ropeable about with the auditors because I couldn't see how that passed muster. Mm. You know, these, these things were valued at 20 times post-tax earnings on the wow. balance sheet. It was a bus company and a cab thing in the UK. Um, that was ludicrous and so not surprising there was a massive write-down mm. when they were sold. Uh, but the key is I was buying a cool cab charge business at, you know, effectively sort of about three times EV EBITDA. Yes, the profits were coming down, but that was not to do, that was less to do with Uber than it was to do with the regulation of the caps on credit card surcharges in cabs, which came down from 10% to 5%. Right. So that's now stabilised and, um, you know, cab charge pretty, you know, it, it, it's a very, very interesting business. It's got a slew of technology sat underneath it now as well. So, you know, I reckon I've got a free option on technology while the cash flow of a not that exciting business, you know, sits, sits there, you know, paying its way through to me. It's interesting. Uh, once again, it's another one that polarises people. We run, if you give them the choice of yeah. cab charge or uh, a share of Uber, they yeah. jump at the share of Uber. Um, yeah, they jump at the share of Uber and then realise that, you know, damn thing loses hundreds of millions of dollars mm. a, a year. Yeah, what you've got to... Yeah, one of, one of the great lessons for people is, you know, one of the great stock market performers over years, not in the last two couple of years, but over over periods of time, one of the great stock market performers has basically been tobacco stocks, mm. you know, if you don't have an ethical issue about investing in them. Why? Because they're just massive cash flow producers. Yeah. And Capture is a massive cash flow producer. It produces enormous amounts of cash flow. And, you know, people are saying, oh, CapCharge will... It'll die. Well, if it was going to die, I can tell you one thing. It was going to die very slowly. Pat Dorsey, the founder of Dorsey Asset Management, has this idea of a value chain and, yep. and, and following the value of a product or an industry yes. through to the suppliers and seeing where value is extracted. And, yeah. and if you can buy part of that. So, for example, a car company, you might look at the car company and say, how much does the dealer get? How much yep. does the, the, the car uh, owner, I suppose, the maker get? How much does the suppliers get? Yeah. And then you as an investor can assess what part of that value chain is most profitable. And one thing reading that AFR article again stuck out to me was one of your long positions led to a short position in yeah. Macquarie. Yes. Can you explain how you got to that valuation and, and how you found that? Absolutely. Um, the long position, I you know, going back to what we discussed earlier about financial companies, um, one of the stocks... Um, I love is a company called Aircap, which is um, an aircraft leasing business. It's one of the big three aircraft lessors in the world. It's mm -hmm. headquartered like all good aircraft lessors in Dublin. <laughs> um, and um, they, are, they, they bought ILFC, which was the world's largest um, aircraft lessor. That used to be part of uh, GE, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, GE on stage. Mm -hmm. um, and being the biggest in the market, they're the biggest in the market, they basically know where every plane in the world is, okay? Mm -hmm. So they know all the forward order books. 
they're listed in their own right, which means they can arbitrage everything that's arbitrageable in that industry. So they can arbitrage credit risk. What do I, you know, what, what, what do I need from Virgin versus a developing world airline? Mm. Okay. They can arbitrage um, currencies. They can arbitrage um, order books. You know, what's the price of a new Boeing 737-800 versus a second-hand price? And they can arbitrage debt and equity. And when I say arbitrage equity, they can look at their own book, they can say, what, what is the value of this plane on our balance sheet? What can we sell it for? And for a long period of time, and still, but the discounts closed up, their own shares have traded at big discounts to NTA. So if you could sell an airplane at a mm. premium to book value and buy back your own stock at a big discount to book value, why would you not do that? Yeah. And so that's, that's exactly what they've been doing. They've, they've retired phenomenal quantums of their equity over the past three to four years, amazing amounts of their equity. And so I love that. It's capital management, the mm. like of which you do not see in Australia. Okay? You just don't see capital management that quality. So they can do that because they're a standalone aircraft lessor. Who is one of the third tier aircraft lessors in the world? Macquarie. Mm. Now, Macquarie have a good book, okay? There's nothing wrong with their book. I'm not suggesting for one minute it's, you know, it's a tatty old book. It's not. It's just not big enough, okay? Um, but Macquarie make phenomenal amounts of money out of it. It's a great business to be in at the right time, and, and, and they bought in at the right time, and they've held it over the right time. They don't disclose very much about aircraft leasing. They disclose about leasing, but aircraft leasing is the biggest part of it. So going back to what, what we talked about very early on in this conversation, some of the parts valuations of companies. Macquarie is a brilliantly run financial services conglomerate, okay? contains some businesses which are there because they're for the benefit of other businesses. Stockbroking, they wouldn't run it ordinarily, you know, but it, it's a conduit to other mm. bits of the business. Um, they've got some lending. Okay. They don't have real competitive advantage in those areas, whereas there are quite clearly other areas of Macquarie they do, you know, simply by investing in the people over a long period of time and being innovative and putting people in early. So the jewel in the crown is Macquarie Asset Management, obviously. And so what I worked out by doing some of the parts analysis against publicly traded peer groups in each area uh, and by actually saying, hey... That's a low PE income stream. That's a low PE income stream. That's a pretty low PE income stream. Plus the one thing you're seeing in Macquarie now, which you did see at its last peak in 2007, there's a lot of asset sale profits. There's a lot of performance mm. fees. They're low PE income streams. Yes, they're going to generate them. There's nothing wrong with them generating them. But if the market values them on 15 and a half times earnings, that's stupid. What it came down to is when I disassembled Macquarie, in my opinion, I thought people were paying about 30 times post-tax earnings with a lot of performance fees in it as well for Macquarie Asset Management, and I said, that's too much. Mm. And so since that's the attraction of Macquarie, then you know, by default that must mean Macquarie itself at, you know, in the mid-120s dollars you know, is a bit overcooked. So could you describe that as somewhat of a pairs trade then between the two? Or? Yeah, in a sense, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, one more point of interest from the... Well, this wasn't from the AFR article, but no. one of your letters. 
Um, and this is something that has proven very topical over the last two years. Um, and for me personally, trying to get people on the show who can uh, talk about this message, uh, hopefully in an unbiased manner, yep. insofar as they can take a long or a short position on this, yep. uh, it's been very difficult. So I'm hoping to get your thoughts on this. Um, cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And how, uh, I suppose, you think that they might change our industry. Okay. A year ago at our last annual general meeting, I, I did part of my presentation was about effectively cryptocurrencies, specifically Bitcoin, and I explained uh, at that time that I thought blockchain technology had a lot of scope. Um, and I mean, I think the most interesting application of that near to us is going to be the ASX settlement system, uh, mm. as that potentially changes to a blockchain-based system. Um, and I said I thought that was quite interesting, okay? And I thought it had scope for, you know, cost reduction and, and everything else. But that I didn't see any particular scope for cryptocurrencies because you can basically do what cryptocurrencies offer as a transactional means already. It's not expensive. It's readily available on your phone. I walk around with my phone and, you know, with my National Australia Bank Visa card just mm. popping it everywhere I can. Um, and I didn't see that transactionally cryptocurrencies could replace what we have already. Um, they potentially have attributes of another asset class and I will accept that over the last 12 months that's maybe come about a little bit, but I don't know what those attributes are. You know, you know when gold reacts, you know when it's supposed to react. I don't know when cryptocurrencies react. So that then takes you to the boom that happened in the last 12 months from 4,000 roughly in September last year via 20,000 back to six and a bit. There are two academic pieces which have been written which categorically show you that components of that boom were utterly manipulated. Um, there's the Willy bot, um, which basically got it going. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, there's the printing of tethers, which are um, basically a cryptocurrency that's supposedly backed one for one by US dollars, but I can't find anyone who really thinks that. And Tether printing, you know, from any econometric standpoint, you know, the, the you know, show there's a massive correlation between prints of tethers and big movements in, in Bitcoin. Right. The other thing about Bitcoin is, you know, as, as I pointed out a year ago, um, you know, people talk about Bitcoin as this great, you know, equalising thing. You know, it's, it's fantastic and egalitarian. Yeah, it's so egalitarian that kind of less than 1% of the wallets in the world own over 90% of it. Mm. So if the price goes up, it's the least egalitarian thing you've ever seen in your life. You know, this base, you know, it's a I called it a reverse Robin Hood. You know, it's, it's, it's robbing from the poor to give to the rich. And that's not changed. So I'm very negative about cryptocurrencies. I mean, I... Uh, themselves, they're, they're, they're basically, there's no constrained supply of cryptocurrency at all, um, you know, because there, there's, there, you know, there's 2,000 plus of the things, so if you don't like Bitcoin, you know, there's a whole variety mm. of other things. And none of them so far have exhibited the transactional capabilities that you would really want out of something new. Is this scope to use the blockchain? Yes, but I still think that's at a fledgling stage. Okay. 
So we're not likely to see um, a position in Bitcoin anytime soon? No, I had a position in E72 last year. We were short and we rode the short all the way up. It cost us a lot of money and we closed it gradually on the way down, but it's still, you know, it it was a net loss to us. so, you know, and, and it is, I mean, it's categorically, I mean, going from one to 20,000 in a year, you know, and then, then back to sort of, you know, five to 6,000. Um, you know, I, I've never seen anything like it in my career. I mean, I've seen exploration stocks, you know, go up even higher than that, mm. um, you know, and in some cases justifiably so, so and I'd never ever short an exploration stock. Okay. Okay. But, you know, Bitcoin was, you know, Bitcoin itself, not the blockchain, but Bitcoin itself, you know, to me was, um, you know, potentially a fraud. And I think it's been proven to be a fraud. And I think, you know, the the worst thing is that because of how Bitcoin is traded and transacted, Mm -hmm. there's no regulatory authority in the world has been able to clamp down on it. And that's sad. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a great discussion because you can take both sides of the fence. Yes. just some some closing thoughts here around some of the risks that you see in financial markets and to investors, yep. whether they be in Australia or investing overseas. Uh, reflecting on your, your 2018 letter, you said there was potentially three areas of concern, which was speculative commodity producers. This is outside of the yep. major banks. Yep. Rising valuations of historically strong returning companies and yep. emerging companies with potentially lucrative business models. Yeah, I think, I mean, um, some, of the, some of the speculative sort of minerals companies have, you know, they've been kind of kicked around fairly badly, I think, since, mm. since that was written, which just shows how quickly the air can come out of mm. things. Um, the, the real risk to me is basically the valuation multiples applied to good companies. And, I mean, I think what, what's really important is you've got to separate out, and, and company management are very loath to do this, you know, separate out the merits or otherwise of a company from its valuation. Okay, and you're seeing that particularly in Australian mid caps at the moment. Yeah, there are companies that you know, some of which are you know growing really, really strongly, have got really good businesses, but the valuation of them is just cooker. It's nonsense. Mm. Yeah, you're being asked to pay you know 80, 90 years worth of earnings for them. That that doesn't work. Okay, um, and that's the thing that really concerns me because when they come da- down to earth. The company's not changed. There's nothing wrong with the company. I mean, its, it's ability to access, you know, zero-cost capital might have been dented slightly, but nothing will change about the company, but you have a whole lot of investors will have walked away, uh, you know, nursing a loss, particularly if they're on borrowed money. Um, you know, I do see that, you know, we're, we're creating some interesting new companies, but investors are jumping on them very quickly and sending them to price levels which, which just reflect valuations kind of 10 years hence, mm. not, not valuations where the company's at at the moment. That really concerns me. Um, that is coming about because we've generally had very easy credit, we've got very low levels of interest rates, that's starting to change. I'm very concerned about Australia specifically because we, we have a we have a debt load the like of which we've never seen before relative to the size mm. of the economy, uh, and that, that that's really really concerning. And you know obviously it's it's taking place at a time when you know politically we're completely directionless. You know we have we have no one making the the bold. Uh, political decisions that were made in the 1980s, for example, to deregulate, float the currency, and then in the 90s to set up a you know absolutely world-beating superannuation mm. system, notwithstanding some of the things that emerge on the fringes of it. Mm. Um, so, and we're not seeing that. And so, when you get when you get debt 
policy vacuums um, and likely to decrease global liquidity and high valuations. You know, that, that's not a real recipe for making great returns. No, it doesn't sound very tempting. So no. for uh, individual investors, mm. would you have any thoughts around how they could potentially position themselves? Yeah. Or? One of the things that happens in times like this is that, you know, as, as people, you know, I, I acknowledge, you know, technology's changing things at a rapid rate of knots, you know. Mm. Certainly, you know, the, the speed of change is quicker than at any time in my investing career, no question about mm. that. Um, so I acknowledge companies can go from nothing to, you know, having real businesses, you know, in very, very quick periods of time. You know, I mean, uh, notwithstanding, I think the valuation of it is overcooked. I mean, something like Afterpay is a tremendous example of that. Mm. You know, I mean, it's grown very, very quickly indeed. But what also happens at times like this where people get enamoured with business models and they don't talk about valuation, okay, um, is that things which are really cheap get left behind. Mm. And so I'm not encouraging investors to go, you know, go out there and sell all their equities and, you know, and basically just sit in cash waiting for the apocalypse to happen. Uh, the best thing for them is just to keep working hard. And, and certainly from my standpoint, I'm still finding plenty of um, cheap companies, um, cheap plays against things, um, which have got even cheaper in the last three to four to five months. It's been quite a difficult period for value investors the last three or four months. Um, you know, so, you know, keep, keep looking. You know, you will find mm. ideas. So, you know, there's, there's always investment companies trading at big discounts to their, their uh, NTA. You know, I've found a number over the last few months. You have to work hard and they're a bit eclectic, but, you know, I've found plenty ranging from, a, you know, Canadian life insurance holding company, which I went through in a, a June quarterly, which is a company called EL Financial. Mm -hmm. It's a family control company. A lot of family control companies around the world, uh, they're trading at big discounts to what they're really worth. Okay. There, are, there are some industries which are just so out of fashion, it's not funny, but are so intrinsic to the way we operate day to day. Uh, shipping, mm -hmm. various bits of shipping. You know, shipping's not one industry. There's container shipping, there's tanker shipping, there's logistics there's bulk shipping and everything else. But you'll find, if you go across those, you'll find a lot of very, very cheap stocks indeed. Um, you'll find at a time, you know, perhaps when, you know, Europe might be sort of levelling out a little bit, but it's certainly a long way from where it was. And, um, you know, I mean, one, of, one of the cheapest sectors that, that I can spot around the world are European banks. Mm. You know, and they're in way better mm. shape than, than they've been yeah. for 10 years. And yet, you know, you can still find uh, you can still find banks trading well below tangible book value. Um, you know, they've still got you know lots of remediation to do. Um, you know, Credit Suisse is probably the classic. You know, it, it's now back trading. You know, it, it touched 17, uh, 1750 early in the year. It's basically you know it's kind of in the high fourteens now. And yeah, it's trading below tangible book value, but you know it still costs sort of you know upwards of yeah, upwards of 500 million Swiss francs a half year mm. in in what's called what is it a strategic resolution <laughs> you know which is basically cleaning up the crap yeah. from the GFC yeah. so you know just I mean cautionary note there if you think Australian banks are going to get away with you know one half of some abnormal charges for remediation you know, for what's going on at the Royal Commission, think again. Mm. Yeah, it can definitely have a long tail to it. Yeah. Um, okay, so where 
can our listeners find out more about you and about E72? Absolutely. We have a website, uh, e72.com.au. On there, um, we publish all our quarterly reports, all our monthly NCAs. Mm -hmm. So monthly is just one page and and some statistics, that's all. Uh, There's there's very little dialogue in it. Uh, Each quarter, uh, we usually write about seven pages of dialogue and then there's Mm -hmm. some stats on the back. Um, We usually cover off on... Um, maybe a thought about markets, but usually one or two companies. Uh, last quarterly, we had no thoughts on markets and did four stocks. Too long, too short. It's a great read. It's a you know that'll give you an idea as to how we think about things. Okay, and you know whether you think they're good ideas or bad ideas is up to you. But it gives you an idea how we think. That's in the investment reports bit. Um, our financial reports are in the financial reports bit, so you can see that. Uh, I usually put up uh, on there as well any any media. Uh, mm-hmm. So. You know, this discussion will, will go on there yep, uh, in due course. So that that's the best way to uh, that's the best way to find out about uh, about me and what I do. There's a library on there as well, which um, I some great resources. Yeah, yeah. which is, well, I'd encourage you to look at because um, you know there, there, there's some real treasure trove articles. You know mm. about sort of Alfred Winslow Jones, the inventor of hedge funds in the 1940s. There's the early days of Sir Ron Briley and industrial equity. Mm. Um, there's um, there's the famous Tooth and Company annual report from uh, 19, uh, I think it's 1981, which is the biggest treasure trove you've ever seen in your life. Mm. And um, Adelaide Steamship were able to uh, buy a controlling stake in it at a massive discount to tangible oh. book value, okay. which included what's now... Treasury minor states, okay, and pubs, okay. and and and. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, great. Um, okay, there's one last question which yeah. I always ask is, uh, if you could go back and tell a younger Andrew something about investing, yeah, what would it be? Oh, that's really easy. Be patient. Um, I don't mind admitting um, most of my mistakes in investing have come about from being impatient. Um, yeah, sure, I've invested in companies that have gone bad. Mm. You know, every investor has, mm-hmm. and you learn something yeah. out of that. You learn about business models and everything else. But probably, certainly for certainly from my standpoint, um, you know, some of my biggest mistakes have been identifying a really good investment, um, getting set, seeing it advance in price, um, taking a 100% return, and then leaving a 500% return mm. for the next person. One of the things it's really, I think, important to understand, particularly if you're buying a good business really cheaply, is obviously the power of compounding and how that works. Mm. And, and old Andrew would be saying to young Andrew, maybe you should have studied that a little bit harder when you were younger. And there's always a temptation for a value investor to come out a little bit early because, of course, you know you think you're buying so cheaply, and sometimes, of course, you're buying businesses which you don't think have got massive long-term earnings power, but they're just too cheap. Media stocks in Australia are a classic example, sort of 18 months to two years ago, yeah, and you've been able to sort of make two and a half times mm. your money out of a number of them since then. Are they going to compound into the future? I suspect not. But if I'm wrong, you know, then you know maybe I'm potentially going to leave a lot on the table, mm. and that that that's the real lesson. It's a great to have a thesis going in, okay. And most people are very good at doing that and understanding what the thesis is. But you've got to be just as disciplined coming out. Mm. 
you know, why are you selling now? Is it so far beyond reasonable, you know, is it beyond reasonable value or a long way beyond reasonable value that says you've got to, got to sell? Obviously, you're going to sell if your thesis has changed. You know, the business model's not what you thought it was or, you know, the management are very, very poor or whatever. But, no, old Andrew would say to young Andrew, just be a bit more patient, mate. That's wonderful advice. Well, Andrew, thanks for your time today. Very generous. Um, Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. And, uh, yeah, I, I wish you all the best with E72. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.